Hey, good morning, everyone. I want you to turn your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. We are in uh, chapter 7 and 8 this morning. At the chapel, we have a focus uh, every Sunday morning for our service. Um, We don't try to do everything that the church is supposed to do in one hour on Sunday morning. We have two primary or fundamental focuses that we focus on every Sunday morning, and that is the word and worship. Um, We do that because we believe that the word of God and the message of God's word is what people in our culture desperately need to hear. So we make this for ourselves a priority. We know that we live in a world that is hurting, that is morally confused, disoriented, and suffering from letting go of the notion of biblical truth, truth that we can live by. And so this morning, I want us to look at this passage of Scripture that is before us. First of all, from the historical perspective, I want you to understand the setting of this text, which primarily we're going to focus on chapter 8. Chapter 7 helps us to kind of reorient to the account of what's happening in the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem under the guidance of a man named Nehemiah. So let's look at verses 1 to 3 of chapter 7, just to set the tone of what's happening. It says, after the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place. Okay, so that, that brings us kind of to a, if you will, a resolve of the tension that was present in the city. The walls were, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 3, the walls were broken and the gates were burned. The people were in great disgrace. So there was a pervasive brokenness that Nehemiah saw at the city. The goal, let's rebuild the walls and let's reset the gates. Let's bring glory back to this city by securing it and making it strong again. What's fascinating is that happens. All right, the Everything's rebuilt. The task is done in a miraculous amount of time, and it is built to be inhabited. If you look at verse 4 of this text, it says, Now the city was large and spacious. And I want you to get the next statement. The word but comes in. So the city is done. It's large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So, what you would think is that with all that work done, there would be a season of celebration. There would be in the hearts of people hope and joy emerging. But you need to understand the kind of context of this city being rebuilt and the number of people that are present. 43,000 people came back 12 years prior to this event with a man named Zerubbabel. Nehemiah comes 12 years later to energize those people to do the task of rebuilding the city. But here's the problem. The city was established originally for a population of 500,000 people. And there were only 43,000 people. And what is there? There's a dissonance that's present. There is a, what one writer called a spiritual vacuum There's an understanding of the utter brokenness that had come to the people of God because of their rebellions against his directives and his ways. That brokenness is pervasive for these people. They knew the glory of old Jerusalem. They'd heard about it. But they've come to a city that is virtually uninhabited in contrast. And so there's a 
brokenness, a stubborn sense of hopelessness that is hanging on to their lives. The question I want to drive at this morning as we move into chapter 8 out of this is, how, how do you find that stubborn sense of brokenness? That stubborn sense of shame. How do we find that that is present in our lives often? How do we find that driven out by the power and word of God? How do we resolve that and find freedom from it? A sense of shame, ruin, and disgrace that clings stubbornly and is often difficult to dislodge from our hearts and minds. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, Pastor Tim, that's where I am. There's a just a stubborn sense of shame over my sin, over my bad choices, and they haunt my life. I want you to know today that as you get into the Word of God, you will find hope for that stubborn sense of shame, for that spiritual vacuum that exists in many of our hearts. The Word of God comes to give us hope, and the aim of Nehemiah in this account is to do that. I want you to notice in chapter 7, there's one other thing that he does. Chapter 7, 6 and following are basically a genealogy. Okay, it's a long list of names tying people to their ancestral tribes in the nation of Israel. And the question would be this, why does Nehemiah do that? Why does he spend so much time recording verses that you and I probably don't read all the way through, being honest? Why does he do that? I think the answer to that is he is using the word of God to reestablish the identity of these people. He wants them to understand who they are. They're the people of God. So all of the statements that are listed here tie the people of God to Jacob and then back to Abraham. By listing these people in their tribes, he is establishing their sense of identity as the people that God had chosen. Folks, that's important for us. To understand that we are the children of God by his sovereign plan and design. And that this stubborn sense of hopelessness needs to be eradicated from our lives by clinging to the truth of God's word, by proclaiming it faithfully, by yielding our lives to it completely, that we find ourselves emerging as people of hope. Are our lives imperfect? Yes. Are there the consequences of sin in our lives? Yes. Does it mean we need to be people without hope? No. No. And so I want to move into chapter 8, seeking to dislodge the sense of shame. So let's move into chapter 8. It says, All the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. Now, I want to make just a couple observations. Okay, this is an assembly of the people of God. There's a denomination in our country called the Assemblies of God. This is where this terminology comes from. The, group, the people of God gathered together to hear from God. All right, this is one of the early Assemblies of God recorded in the Scripture. What I want you to notice is what the people demand. What they say to Nehemiah. The people's demand is, Nehemiah, through Ezra the scribe, give us the word of God. So they come. And they told Ezra, bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. I love that. And what it means is that the people of God had come with an expectation that they would hear from God, from his spiritual leaders that were present. Verse 3 then tells us how Ezra responds. It says, so on the first day of the seventh month, verse 2, I'm sorry, 
Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women, all who were able to understand. And notice what it says next. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, the women, and the others who could understand. All the people listened attentively. I love this. I wonder what would happen if we tried that this morning. Now, I'm going to be generous in, 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 in my understanding of how long Ezra read the word of God to these people. Okay, it says from daybreak till noon. All right, I'm going to argue, since they're uh, more southerly in orientation and closer to the equator, I'm going to argue that being really generous, this is somewhere between 8 o'clock in the morning and noon. Ezra reads the word of God. And if you say to me, what parts is he reading? He's reading from the Pentateuch. That's the law of God. The five books that Moses recorded. When I'm looking for excitement, they're not the books that I go to and read. They're not. But they are the history of God for the people of God. And they contain the story of the exodus and the deliverance. They contain the consequences of obedience and the consequences of disobedience. And as the people hear this, something powerful begins to happen in in a movement of God upon the hearts of these people as they stand respectfully and listen to the word of God. The other thing you notice is that there is a platform that is set up which indicates the priority of the word of God in the life of the people of God. Ezra stands on a platform that is built for the occasion to proclaim the word of God from an elevated place. Obviously, at one level, from a practical consideration to make it audible. But I think there is also implied in this a sense of priority for the proclamation of biblical truth that emerges from this text. The question I want to ask you this morning is, as you come to church, what should you demand? What should you ask What should you request from those that are tasked with the job of proclaiming the word of God to you? I want to look at this text from two angles. First of all, from the job of the one who is proclaiming. And then I want to look at it from the perspective of the people who are listening. These two perspectives. The preacher's job. Chapter 8 and verse 5 tells us Ezra opened the book. And the indication is that he's reading, but the the question is, is that all that he's doing? Simply reading the word of God. I think if you go down to verse 8, you find the resolution to that question. It says, they, this plurality of people that were involved in teaching that morning, read from the book of the law of God. Okay, so the first task of a preacher is what? To read to you the word of God. Secondly, they were making it clear. That is, they were giving the sense of what God was saying. They were interpreting the text for the people. And then they were giving the meaning. And I think the giving of the meaning here probably leans towards the idea of application. So that the the job of a pastor and what you should expect of us on a regular basis is that we would read to you the word of God. We would explain it and we, we would show you how to live it. Okay, to take that meaning and to put it into practice in your life so that you can take it home. Asking the question, what should I do with what I heard today? I would challenge you as a church family to ask this of your pastors, of your pastoral team. That we would faithfully proclaim to you 
every Sunday, the word of God. 2 Timothy 4.1 says this. Paul charging Timothy, he says, In the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, his son, who will judge the living and the dead, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering. Folks, our job as pastors is to communicate to you on a faithful basis the word of God. To give you the sense and to show you how to live it. That's our job. And I believe that you should have the courage to challenge us on a regular basis to do that. Uh, the one person who does that to me faithfully is Sandy Wagner. She's not here today, so I can say this. I love, I love her. I love her passion. She, whenever you're going to be preaching, she grabs you by the shoulder almost painfully and says, preach it, brother. Okay? And you know what? You ought to come in with an expectation that when I sit here, I will hear the word of God. My feet will be held to the spiritual fire so that God can purify my life and restore hope and joy and drive out shame. That's the aim of preaching God's word so that we can be set free, so that we can have light on our path. We as a church family are committed, our leadership team is committed to text-based preaching. You won't find us doing much topical preaching, injecting our ideas, you know, trying to find verses to say that what we want to say. Our aim is to unfold scripture, to exegete scripture, to let truth exit out of scripture as it is explained so that the hearts of the people of God can be affected and challenged. So we're committed to that as a church family. We want you to know that. Why do we do that? Why is our commitment every Sunday to preach from this book that is thousands of years old? Why? This text is 2,600 or 2,400 years old. And we're looking at it today saying, God, speak to us. You see, folks, we're originalists. We believe that God, in his word, communicated truth for his people. And that when we stand up as pastors, our job is not to reorient the truth, but it is to proclaim it. So that God can work mightily and powerfully in our lives. Jesus said this in John chapter 17. He said, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. It will drive out shame and brokenness. It will bring restoration and hope into your life. Hebrews 4 and verse 12. The word of God is quick and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of, 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 of bones and marrow. It divides and it shows the intents and thoughts of the heart. That's why we proclaim God's word. It's the instrument that he uses to change his people. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for all of our lives. But have you ever thought of this? When the word of God is read, God is speaking. All scripture is the breath of God. You know, we live in a world that needs to hear from God. I need to hear from God. You need to hear from God. And when you come to church, you should have the privilege of hearing people boldly, not teaching, but preaching, exhorting the people of God with the word of God, with the understanding that when the pastor is accurately proclaiming biblical truth, God is speaking. Please understand, I say that with fear. You should be able to listen to what comes forth on Sunday morning and live it. I call you to discern it. I call you to test it with the written word of God at all times. But you should come with the expectation that in the context of our assembly, we are word-based. 
Because we believe that hope for broken people emerges from this book as God speaks. Let that thought settle in and affect how you listen. Also, this is a test for us in terms of our music. As James mentioned earlier, we strive and ask of our worship team leader that we would sing songs that are biblical in content. Our first test for music is not as a corporately singable. It's not as a contemporary style. Our first test is the content biblical. So that in what's preached, you hear the word of God. So that in what is sung, you hear the word of God. Because every other encouragement, every other structure you erect to stabilize your life will be weak and failing. But here's what the Bible says. It says the word of the Lord, Psalm 119, endures forever. And that's a text that is written to encourage you to bury your life in biblical truth. Because it will change your life. We live in a sad world. We live in a world that has walked away from truth. I thought, and I'll just give you this one illustration. I thought of the issue of life. I have a daughter who's 21 weeks pregnant. I get all kinds of pictures on my phone of the growth of this baby. Side profile shots, right? The other week she said to me, it finally popped. I said, that would be a grand pop. You got to think about that for a second. This week, she sent me, uh, at 21 weeks, I think we're at six inches long, something like that, the child. Uh, the one, uh, one of her friends at work said, hey, come down to the ultrasound. We want to do a 4D ultrasound. It's like in color. And I was like, amazed. I live in a world where my daughter, who today loves her child, I live in a world where because we have walked away from truth in an effort to have freedom sexually, we want to eliminate the consequences. I live in a world where if my daughter wakes up tomorrow and says, you know what, I don't want to have a child. I live in a world that would allow her to choose to terminate what today she weeps over as her child. Now, folks, Martin Luther called that moral schizophrenia. You want to live in a world of shame and hopelessness? Ignore the truth of God. Legislate sinfulness. Make it legal to do what God prohibits. And you will, you will vulcanize the sense of shame to this country. That's why there is a pervasive sense of hopelessness and disorientation and political confusion in this world at every level and in every party. Because we have walked away from truth. And the job of the church is to proclaim truth because Jesus said, when you know the truth, it will set you free. And that is our task. Now, that leads over to the response of the people. I want you to notice how the people of of God responded when the word of God was read. Look at verse 6. Ezra opens the book, verse 5. As he opened it, the people all stood up. Why? Well, it's kind of like what happens when a dignitary walks in the room. The president walks in the room. People should, out of respect for the office, rise. When, a, when an aged person enters the room, people should rise out of respect. And when the people heard the word of God, when it was opened in front of them, they had this visceral response. They stood to their feet out of respect and reverence for what was coming 
their way. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. You understand what's happening here? In their hopelessness, the word of God comes forth and they, with expectation, listen, expecting to hear from God. Now, the question comes up, is this how we should respond when the word of God is read? When we come into the presence of God, here's what I'm going to say to you this morning. This text is in the minimum descriptive of what actually happened as broken people saw the door of hope opening. 43,000 in a city of 500,000 population potential. Broken. The word of God is open before them. They, with expectation, rise. They extend their hands and say, amen, amen. And I think what they're doing is this. I think they're saying, so be it, presumably, may it be true in my heart. What comes forth today from the word of God, may it be true in my heart. Is it prescriptive? That's the question you have to ask here. A lot of people will preach every text from the Bible as if it's prescribing what is being described. I'll be honest with you. Okay, I, I don't think that the purpose of Nehemiah recording this text is to tell people how to respond physically to the joy of hope. But I will say this. It is at least a description of the fact that when the people of God in their shame were captivated, captivated by the potential of hope and truth, it changed them. It, it affected them. And they were so in tune with that truth that it, it affected them in physical ways. It was clear looking at them that they had an expectation of hearing from God and said, amen, amen. We are committed to responding to what God is saying. That's minimal here. And so I, let me bring that to application. And verse 3, by the way, it says, uh, this, let, me, let me show you this real quick. Verse 3, it says, all the people listened attentively, attentively to the book of the law. Okay, they listened with an expectation of hearing and learning from God. So here's the obvious question that emerges from this text for me in preaching this portion of Scripture. Is this how I come to the house of God? Do I come with an expectation that the shame I live with and deal with from time to time from my brokenness and my sinfulness, do I come with the expectation of hope that God is going to shine the light of his truth into my life today? And he is going to peel away some of the shame and some of the hopelessness that has vulcanized itself to my life. Do I live with that hope? Do I come expectantly? Can I, can I say this? I think if you started to come to church like that, it would affect how you plan on Saturday night to be at church on Sunday morning. I think it would affect how you schedule your time on Sunday morning to be in the house of God with the people of God. You would come with a purpose and with an aim to listen attentively to everything that God is saying so that your life can be changed. And so that the hope that is being proclaimed as God through his word speaks and communicates can become part of who you are. So the first thing I note about these people is that they came with respect and reverence and expectation that they would hear from God. The second thing I notice in the text in verse 9 
is that they responded with tears. You'll find in verse 9 and verse 10 and verse 11 that the people are weeping as they hear the law of God. It is penetrating. If your heart is distracted and tired when you come to church, that's not going to happen. It's going to happen when you come prayerfully, sit in your chair before the service, say, God, did I need to hear from you? You come with an expectation that if I hear from God, things in my life that are wrong will be made right. And the sense of shame will be overwhelmed by the grace of God. Look at verse 9. It says, then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them, this day is sacred to the Lord your God. This was, by the way, a festival day, a celebration day. And here's what they say. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Why? Because as the words of the law were spoken, two things were happening. They were understanding that their life was out of sync with God's truth. Folks, this is why when you communicate the gospel with people, you must be a person of courage. A person of courage who, who upholds the law of God, the Ten Commandments, and shows people, here's the standard of God. Here's where you and I are. With the hope that that word of God would break that wayward heart and cause it to see that there is hope in Christ. Here's what I think happened. I think the people of Israel heard the law of God and they said, oh my. I think there's a sense of what have we done? But then you read through the story of the Exodus. And what do you find? You find a God who loves broken people. Who comes through the sacrifice of a lamb to redeem broken people. And I think the tears are mixed here. I think there's tears of sorrow as they see our lives are not in line with God's truth. God help us. But I think there is hope as they read the story of the Exodus. And as they listen to, to their story as the people of God. Yes, there's brokenness. Yes, there is pervasive hopelessness. But there is hope. If God could deliver Israel from Egypt. Then he can rebuild this city. He can bring hope where, hope where there is a vacuum spiritually. Which leads me to an observation this morning. The word of God as it is spoken. Almost always cuts before it comforts. It almost always stings before it sings. It almost always wounds before it heals. God's word has a way of doing the uncomfortable work of a spiritual surgeon and then brings healing. And the process isn't always joyful. It can be painful. It can be rough, it, but it is essential. And so the word of God, as it comes, it confronts our lives. It challenges us and calls us, but also brings us to hope. See, here's what happens. Three times they said, please stop grieving. Stop mourning. The question is why? I think the reason is this. Regret and shame can quickly deteriorate to another form of enslavement called hopelessness. And Ezra and Nehemiah challenged the people. This is a day of rejoicing. The word of God is proclaimed. Hope is moving forward. Respond. So the weeping is appropriate, but when it moves into a Christless 
sorrow or when it moves into the realm of what we would call in religious terms a form of penance that I'm beating myself up so that I can feel absolved of my sin. That is Christless sorrow. The Bible calls us to Christ-centered sorrow and Christ-exalting sorrow that sees, yes, my sin deserves the judgment of God, but praise God, there is a Redeemer. And to that we say amen and amen. We are people of hope, folks. The word of God will break us, it will humble us, but it does it in order to reset our hearts. So I challenge you, don't let the sorrow over sin blind you to the amazing grace of God. And don't let the amazing grace of God blind you to the seriousness of sin. Don't excuse your sin because God will forgive you. Don't fall down that hole. It leads to hopelessness. You got to live in a balance. A balance that exalts the cross and understands that I am a broken man. I am a broken woman. I'm a broken young person. But there is a God who loves broken people. Who loves the celebration. And that's where this text goes next. So the people respond with respect. Secondly, with tears. Thirdly, with God-exalting joy. Look at verse 10. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. Send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our God. Do not grieve. And I love this next statement. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now here's what I know. I know the response of the people to the reading of the word of God that convicted them was not joy. But I also know that something happened in the reading of that word that showed them that there was hope. And it's that that Nehemiah clings to. He says, stop grieving. Don't be hopeless, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy that there is a Savior who loves you persistently, who will never let go, who is seeking to reorient you to himself in relationship. Through an exodus, he will bring you out of your brokenness and into a place called the promised land, a place of hope. That, folks, is how God's works when his word is proclaimed. In Psalm 119, I believe it's verse 35. The Bible says, the entrance of your words give life. And so folks, when you come on Sunday, I hope that you come with a heart that is prepared to attentively receive the word of God as it is sung and as it is proclaimed. Our time in worship is a time of proclamation. Our time in the word, in the service is a time of proclamation. And what we will celebrate together now this morning is a time of proclamation. Do you realize that in the Lord's table, every one of us becomes a preacher? And what you preach through these elements is the message that we will have a seminar to help you to learn to communicate. It's the good news of Christ. Folks, we are people of hope that live in a broken world. Here's what Jesus said to the church early on. He said, every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So every time we come to this table, we become preachers of hope that for sinners, there is a savior who died in your place, who will forgive you upon repentance when there is weeping and brokenness. He will respond with grace and forgiveness in your persistent failures, in your stubborn sense of hopelessness. You can find hope in one who bore your sin and shame, your disgrace and the resulting hopelessness. 
and offers you life today. Life abundantly. May God help us. May God help us to be people that demand the word of God. That you would expect and demand that of us as your pastors. And that when you come, you would come with expectation. You would come listening attentively with a heart prepared for God to move and work. And to strip away the sense of shame that tends to cling to us. And to fill you with hope and joy. So that you can listen to the call of Nehemiah. To go and enjoy choice food. Verse 13 says, then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. And folks, as we partake of the Lord's table this morning, may we do it as people who understand what God is saying through these elements about the gospel of Jesus Christ that gives hope for sinners. Father, I pray this morning that as we come to the Lord's table, we would come with great expectation. We would come, each one who has trusted Christ would come with the aim and goal of proclaiming Christ's death again until he comes. And Lord, we need that because the death of your son is the source of our hope. So Father, as we now quiet our hearts, And we reflect on the word of God. Some of us this morning, Lord, may find tears of sorrow. As the spirit of God convicts by the word of God. And shows us where our lives are out of sync. Lord, I pray that your spirit would also preach hope and forgiveness and grace. At the same time. So that we can respond to the sense of shame with a voice of hope. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Lord, let your word settle deeply into our hearts this morning. Let our love for the cross, our desire to know it more faithfully, let it grow this morning as we partake of these elements. For the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray these things. And all God's people said, amen.